Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the revised common lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is Aubrey Buster. Aubrey Buster is a a psalm scholar and a professor of Bible at Wheaton College in Illinois. And she's been on the show a couple times now, and she has some writings out on psalms. If you just type her name, Aubrey Buster, you'll find her stuff um, out there on the webs. So yeah, she is uh, such a great interpreter of the scriptures and the Psalms in particular, we've had her on a number of times this year. So it's really perfect. She's been the kind of new discovery this year. We've had a few other new guests, but she's been on it a number of times and has been a real help this year as we've been going through the Psalms. So it's really fitting to have her here now for uh, Psalm 46, which is uh, our last episode on the Psalms. We, we may look at some Psalms next week too, but, but uh, as we transition though, but from here on out, we're entering now transitioning. Next week will be Christ the King Sunday, and then we're going to be in Advent after that. And so in a way, this is really the last episode of this year in the Psalms. So it's really perfect to have her with us today. So I'm so glad that she's on the show today. As you're listening today, if you're finding yourself enjoying the show, just press the share button on your podcast player app of choice, and you can pass it along to others so they can enjoy it as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and see ways you can support us there. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Aubrey. All right, you want to read the passage to get us started? Is that okay? Yes. All right, go for it. And I'm reading from the NIV today. Okie doke. Psalm 46. For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamot, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for being our fortress, being our shelter, being our protection and stability. I know I need that to hear that again and again and again and sing it and pray it as I'm so inclined to place my trust in so many other things, which inevitably falter. So thank you, Lord, for being who you are and for revealing that to us. 
And so, Lord, we ask that as Aubrey and I reflect on this passage, that its uh, truth and wisdom and spirit would be at work amongst us and would guide and inspire those listening in. We ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah, so what do you notice here? What stands out to you when you look at this familiar, famous psalm? What stands out to you afresh today? Hmm. A few things. This is a, it's a rich song. It's familiar for good reason. The first thing, of course, is the image of God as our refuge. That is a place of safety and stability. And I think this image of God as being in a place where God's people can dwell securely is a kind of theme that is developed throughout the psalm. You can think of, as I read this psalm, the truth, the claim that the psalm makes is that God is our refuge, and then it gives our response, therefore we will not fear. And we see that that, that idea of refuge is a, is a key theme because it's both the beginning and the end point of the psalm. So that image of, of refuge is definitely something that I notice. The second thing that I noted is this name translated in the NIV as the Lord Almighty. It is often translated as Lord of hosts, uh, Yahweh Tzavaot. It's an interesting name for God. There's some translation discussions surrounding the name. Um, so I immediately notice the significance of that name, which occurs twice in the psalm. That final verse says, it is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tzavaot, who is with us. That's why we, why we shouldn't fear. So I'm interested in that name. Did you say it appears twice? Yeah, so I have it in 7 and 11. In 7 and in, in 11? Oh, I see it at the end. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. So that, there's that oh, repeated it's, So it's refrain. in the refrain. Right, right, right. That's okay. right. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And at the end, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is and our is fortress. And is that refrain identical both times in the original? I just wanted to check, but sometimes the refrains have slight variations that don't always make their way into translation, but... It is, including, it is identical. You said including the what? Was there something something the interesting selah. there? Oh, okay, the, right. They both end with yeah. a Selah. Yeah. Yes. Well, this is just a quick aside, because I don't know if it's come up too much this year. What, what's your take on the Selah thing? I know there's a million reasons, a million takes. Actually, I don't know if I told you this. I'm sure it will be on my intro, which our listeners will have heard, but I haven't yet recorded because I was recording the intro last, but... That this is actually our last episode in the Psalms series. So great chance to slip any general Psalms information you want to get in before under the radar, but, um, or under the, the timer. But well, what's your take on the Selah? What that means? It is a great question. I am not fully convinced by, um, by any of the arguments. I tend to be most attracted to the kind of liturgical interpretations of the Selah. The idea that it's either indicating a kind of pause in the liturgical presentation, so it might actually be for the, the reader or the singer themselves, or some kind of invitation to the crowd to pause for a moment of reflection, but it is difficult. I don't think it should be translated, but when I see it, I do tend to pause in the liturgical reading. It, it might serve in that way as a point of emphasis, something that you don't run over. It also serves, it serves very clearly as a dividing marker, which is helpful, particularly in texts that weren't, if you see, um, not all manuscripts in the ancient world would have been lineated. 
So we associate poetry with short lines. You can tell when you read a poem because the lines don't break at the page. The lines themselves have meaning. And we do have within the Psalms very early lineation. So many of the manuscripts from Qumran, which are our earliest physical psalm manuscripts, are already lined, which is really remarkable, but not all of them are lined. And so Selah might function as a really powerful kind of line break. Set this apart, set this statement apart uh, when you're reading or, or listening. But that is not the consensus. There is no consensus. That is just the argument that I have found most convincing and has influenced my reading of the psalm. Yes, it's clearly some kind of instruction and not part of the the syntax of the sentence. It's just wondering how to how to take it. So what do you think of those theories that are out there since since you've already sort of zoomed our attention onto the refrain to if that is the right terminology for the repeated line that sometimes people will I, I've seen this occasionally theorize that perhaps the refrain would have at some point originally appeared at the first Selah as well. And that it kind of works in like you, because the, the thing could break up into three sections very naturally. You know, you could add the Lord of armies is with us. A fortress for us is Jacob's God, you know, right after the waters that roll and everything. Cause there's a shift in verse five, you know, I'm not much for that kind of textual emendation stuff, but I do find it a fascinating sort of question. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have general thoughts that I think will relate to the use of the psalm. I do not have an opinion in this particular psalm, but anytime we see either textual variation or refrains in the psalm, we shouldn't view these as texts that were written down as we think of canonical scripture. So it isn't like the sons of Korah were sitting down and like, here is Psalm 46. Let me write down the, the original manuscript for all time. Um, and, and unlike a lot of texts, we actually have lots of evidence from the earliest manuscript tradition at Qumran about how the Psalms were used. You're going to regret getting me on this, actually, as will your readers, because... No the regrets. Go for it. <laughs> the, the Final Psalms episode. Let's go for Ooh. it. The Qumran Psalter is, is one of my great areas of interest because it gives us insight into how the Psalms were actually used. And one of the things that we see is that there is a lot of variation in the way that the Psalms are arranged. There are, in some Psalms, inserted lines or inserted stanzas that probably had to do with the way they were performed. That is, one group might perform this Psalm responsively, another group might perform it non-responsively. Evidence from narrative performances of Psalms, so say in First Chronicles 16 or Nehemiah 9, which is Psalm-like, also often present the people as responding with a refrain. So I tend to think that the Israelite people knew several of these refrains and that they might be inserted rather creatively into the liturgy at different points in time. It isn't as though the Israelites would have had a... Um, a physical prayer book like people have in liturgical traditions. Uh, participation in these liturgies was probably learned through experience and exposure. So I tend to be, especially with things like refrains or repeated lines, to be quite flexible in my imagination of what this would have looked like on the ground. So would some performances of this psalm, perhaps some texts of this psalm, include additional refrains? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I think your your listeners should take from this discussion is an understanding of the Psalms as a lived tradition, a lived and performed tradition, not first and foremost, a kind of written studied tradition. 
yeah, maybe maybe this will be an unhelpful analogy for some who didn't grow up with these kinds of hymns. But there's a number of like old hymns I grew up singing that had these little choruses, these little refrains. It would be called refrain that you find, and then I found out later they weren't a part of the original hymn. They were just a hymn with no chorus that would repeat. I wish I could think of a really good example right now, but just the fact that like those refrains and that's emerged through practice because like having some pause to do something different helps to break up the flow of a longer text. And it's just what communities do with words that are actually in our mouths, you know? Well, and I think we actually have a good representation here because I come from a low church tradition and what we like to do over here (laughs) in the basement is take traditional hymns and just repeat key lines over and over again with a a guitar riff. Right. There's something really attractive about these refrains because people can get really into them. As a musician, you can teach it to people and they can pick it up really easily, even if they didn't grow up with that hymn. So this idea of refrains being repeated in order to encourage or because of congregational participation is, I think, something, something we can recognize throughout and across traditions. Yeah. And just to throw kind of one in that's not remotely doesn't make it more relatable because it's very ancient, but just interesting because it's an existing ongoing set of practices. The, the Benedictine monks who of course pray the Psalter through week in and week out. And we have clear evidence all the way back to the founding, which is 1500 years ago now, which is actually closer in time to those Qumran texts at least than, than we are. And perhaps there's some influence and connection there that's been lost to time. But although it is theorized because Benedict, the founder was, that was not a name, a common name in Italy. So it may have been that he was Jewish and that was his Benedict. He was a Baruch, right? So that's not known. It's just speculative. But anyway, the, when the new monks are there and they didn't, and for most of the history, they didn't have, all didn't have books, right? There was one prayer book for the whole building and they sang in the dark mostly anyway, so they couldn't see it. There would always be a frame. Every single Psalm has a refrain and it's sometimes a line from the Psalm it's sometimes a, a line from the gospel for that day, that kind of thing. And that's the one thing that's repeated at the top and a few times in and at the end. And it's assumed when you're new, that's all you're going to sing because you haven't memorized the Psalter like the, all the old guys have already. So I feel like the fact that whether that's actually influenced by earlier usage of the psalm or just a demonstration of this is just what humans do with songs. They give them rhythm and shape and turn-taking and all the things that make a, a text a living a song rather than a, a fixed text before our eyes, which I think is exactly the point as you put it. That's right. Especially repeated lines in liturgy are a form of communal education. Everyone can pick them up. Children, new members to the congregation very quickly can be educated into this communal speech via these liturgical refrains. So they're really, they're a really powerful form of human community formation, I think. Well, that's great. Uh, Let's take a quick break and come back and explore this some more. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we are looking at Psalm 46. So let me, I'll go ahead and read it again to get it fresh in our ears. And just as a little twist, how about I, not because I think this is the original version of the text, but what is an original version when it comes to the Psalms, but I'm actually, because we focused on the refrain, I'm just going to leave them out and just kind of see if 
see if we hear, you know, cause who knows, it could have started out that way. And then these were woven in, even if it was by the same sons of Korah. Right. So, and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the imagery here. So here goes Psalm 46. God is a shelter and strength for us, a help in straits readily found. Therefore, we fear not when the earth breaks apart, when mountains collapse in the heart of the seas, its waters roar and royal, mountains heave in its surge. A stream, its rivulets gladden God's town, the holy dwelling of Elion. God in its midst, it will not collapse. God helps it as morning breaks. Nations roar and kingdoms collapse. He sends forth his voice and earth melts. Go, behold the acts of the Lord, who made desolations on earth, caused wars to cease to the end of the earth. The bow he has broken and splintered the spear, and chariots burned in fire. Let go and know that I am God. I loom among nations. I loom upon earth. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Thank you to God. Well, it sounds like it totally feels like something's missing, but it also totally works. Like it just flows straight. Like that, those are an interruption in the, you can actually see the flow of the, the words. Although I'm like, I totally miss it. It's like, ah, <laughs> tell me what this means. That's what the refrain's doing. It's telling us what it means in a way, right? But it tells us how to respond to that information ah, right? yeah, yeah. for us that God is this way. And the people would say, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress as a way to interpret and apply. I'm putting scare quotes up, apply those things, uh, the message of the Psalm to us, to our lives. No, I like that because in, you know, in many ways, the, the Psalms are already interpreted scripture. They are part of scripture's interpretation of the Torah and of the stories, you know, so that kind of dynamic of, of the, the layers of interpretation being already in the text itself is really fun to think about. So talk to me a little bit about this imagery, uh, the streams and the rivers. I mean, there's a flow here of some kind that's running from something at the beginning to the middle to the end, but what do you, what do you think it's trying to get at? You can pick it up wherever you want. Although I really want to know what this river of God is. Is this a specific river? What is this getting at? So as I was reading it, I think it actually connects to a specific image that would have been in the Israelite mind. One of my professors during my PhD program, uh, Dr. Joel Lamon, who is a Psalm scholar, I don't know if you've had him on, but he's a, he's a great Psalm scholar, has talked about imagery constellations. That is, these images shouldn't be interpreted in isolation, but they actually mean together. And I have, since we're recording on video, a picture that I'm going to describe because I do think that it's this constellation that is in the Israelite mind. So in the ancient Israelite world, they often pictured temples, that is the place where deities dwelt, as a kind of fortress, a strong mountain that stood at the joining place of several rivers. And the rivers were imagined to flow out from the place that the deity stood so temples were often portrayed as standing on mountains from which rivers would go out and it would feed these beautiful gardens. And what this was symbolizing was that the gods were a place of security, but a place of security that brought life. 
In this way, of course, they're slightly different from a kind of fortified city that was designed only to prevent destruction. It was a kind of fortified city, a safe place that brings forth life. So I think the way that this psalm proceeds, especially beginning in verse four in the English, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is bringing us from the rivers that are, you can imagine, coming down this hillside. And at the top of that hillside is the city of God, the temple. That is the holy place where the Most High dwells. So it is a place of safety and also a place of life-giving power. And this was a relatively common image in the ancient world. This is why temples would often be surrounded by gardens. Even if they weren't natural river places, they would be surrounded by life and vegetation in order to portray this symbolism. Yeah, that immediately makes me think of the scene at the end of uh, Ezekiel. Right, where there's this temple and all these rivers that flow out every direction. Whereas that, if you're not aware of this larger context, that imagery feels kind of out of nowhere when all you have is, you know, the Exodus and Levitical descriptions of temple, right? Out in the wilderness, right? Uh, and even the description of the temple in the historical books, in Kings and Chronicles, this river feels like this kind of supernatural out of the blue thing. But it sounds like, in a way, that was a sort of vision that would have corresponded with the the imagination of the people at the time anyway. And we see it in, if you look in Genesis 2 in our own Bibles, the Garden of Eden is described as sitting at the intersection of four rivers. Yeah, yeah. And the okay. Garden of Eden is portrayed as a temple. And so this idea of life-giving water imagery flowing from the place where God dwells, the source of all life, is present even in our own Bibles. This is a connection to that ancient Near Eastern temple imagery. We also see it show up in, in Revelation, that water that is sitting but smooth as glass before the throne of God. This is a repeated image that connects the first and last books of our Christian Bibles and then also occurs repeatedly in the Psalter. That's so helpful because it kind of feels like without that imagery in mind, the, the the river's language in verse four can feel to a modern reader as a shift in, you even have a sailor there. It can feel like a shift in imagery, but it seems like you're saying it, it sort of directly corresponds. Although interestingly, you don't have temple language at the very beginning because God himself is functioning as his own temple in a way, right? So I think water imagery is used as a linking metaphor throughout the psalm. There are some pretty explicit allusions to the crossing of the Red Sea. So Exodus, um, sorry, Psalm 46.5, God will help her at break of day is actually a quotation from Exodus 14.27. Whoa, okay. See these two corresponding water images. That is, water is a source of life. And water is also a force of death. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to understand how this works, right? We need water to live. And also water can kill you is one of the paradoxes, one of the paradoxes of water. And the psalm uses both of these ideas, the idea that water and water imagery is a force of destruction and chaos, and water is a source of life, to capture this paradox within God, God's self, that is God is a refuge. Why is God a refuge? Because of the desolations that God brings on the earth. This was actually a phrase that I hadn't noticed before in the reading of the psalm, and it surprised me. It surprised me. Come and see what the Lord has done. And you're like, I'm coming, I'm coming. 
the desolations he has brought on the earth. I was like, that is not what I expected you to say, right? I expected something something like, come and see what the Lord has done. The wonders that God has wrought. Come and see what the Lord has done. The salvation that God has provided for all people. But that's not where it goes. It goes to God's destructive power, God's destructive power to fill out and explain how God is life and protection for God's people. Yeah, and so that may even help us interpret like the next line causes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. This is not a, hey, guys, let's take a break from wars. It's no, I've defeated you. And so the war is over, (laughs) right? It's God's peace treaty. You know, and the bow he has broken and splintered the spear and chariots burn in fire. This is this is very violent imagery to describing the end of violence, right? It's the it's the negation of that of that power. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's really powerful that it, and it's really violent imagery. This is breaking, shattering, burning. This is imagery of war. And it is because of this. That in verse 10, you can have that beautiful line, be still or let go. I think your your translation said, stop. You can stop because God is acting. Yeah. So let's camp out there. I mean, obviously, we could have spent the whole hour on probably the most famous line from the psalm. It's definitely the most uh, Pinterest ready, you know, like a little be still and no uh, <laughs> sign, you know, which is great. I love it. How do you think is the best way to translate that opening verb, which is clearly the only reason we know it's a quotation from God speaking would be because of the I am in there. So it's it's from the content that we get a clue that it's a, a kind of more prophetic speech. But how about that opening verb? How would you help us with the nuance of that? You know, that's that's a difficult question, in part because most of the occurrences of this verb, it's a hifil, and Typically with the hifil, not always, but often in the hifil, you're going to get an object. And almost all of the occurrences of this verb in the hifil, that's a particular stem within the Hebrew language, have an object. And so we have things like God says, God will not leave who? You. Or leave me alone. In each of these cases, there's an an object. It's difficult then to figure out how to translate this without an object because there isn't one. And so does it mean to let go? And if so, what are you letting go? Or does it mean in in one other instance where it doesn't have an object, it means something like stop or be quiet. So I actually find this to be really difficult to translate. It is clearly referring to something that you refrain from doing, whether that's refraining from speaking or acting, whether it is letting something go that is a task that you have You could be letting go the task that you've assigned yourself to protect your own well-being or to fight this war that you think you're a part of. But it is certainly talking about ceasing action or ceasing an action that you were perhaps already taking or leaving a mode of action that you were walking down. And the reason that you do this is because because God is God. So I'm actually, in, in this case, I would invite the reading of multiple translations in order to see the different possibilities for what it signifies. Yeah, that's very helpful. And, and I mean, because it's poetry, you can't do a sort of rigid, linear linking to what comes before. But there is some help there as you were walking us through, right? The, the letting go, the ceasing, the being still, the stopping, the leaving be, uh, are all the different, you know, even, even the being still seems to fit really well with all these these weapons, right? The bow and the spear and the chariots, right? 
that are being kind of taken away, you know? So it can work that way, but I mean, a line can stand on its own as well, you know? And yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you're, you're singing my, you're singing my song when you say, I don't know, look at a lot of translations and you'll get, I mean, it's like when everyone, I remember in college when they like first taught me how to do like an English word study, you know, you get the Strong's number, but don't use Strong's, go and look it up. And I can do that. You know, you can do it on, on Bible hub and, and blue letter Bible and just kind of see where a word appears. And it is very helpful and illuminating because it, it kind of experienced the breath. But I did always kind of find that like, you know, if I just look at six or seven translations, I'll also get the same basic spread because they all did this work, you know, something's missing in, in the end. But in this case, you need it because this word is, it almost is never used this way, right? Yeah. It just kind of, just kind of dangling there, which again is very poetic to kind of use a, to use a verb in a, slightly different way that kind of leaves it open to the interpretation of the moment when one sings it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think one of the powerful things about this verse in context, and I think you helpfully pointed out that in, so in NIV I have, he says, be still, but of course that's not there. And it, it, it makes more powerful the appearance of this verb. Cause we have, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Stop. <laughs> stop and know that I am God. And I think these two ideas need to be linked because often we have these two, maybe not where you are, but I know where I am. We have these two kind of impulses within the Christian tradition. The one is to say the justice and power of God will be made manifest on the earth. And we need to bring this about. And I would view this as a positive Christian response. And then there's the spiritualizing camp, right? We need to work with sin within ourselves, and we need to work in our relationship with God. And we kind of need to ignore what's going on in the world um, because that's secondary. And I want to view these two impulses as both positive, but they can't stand separate from one another. And where I've seen be still and know that I am God kind of emblazoned on the t-shirt is to kind of present this, let's find this place of spiritual peace and security separate from the world's troubles. And if you're too concerned or too agitated by what's going on in the world, that's kind of a lower state of, of spiritual existence. And I think this psalm brings these two forcefully together. Why can you be still and know that I am God? Even though, as it says in verse two and three, the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. This is this is not a great day. Like, I don't know if any of you have been there when mountains fall into the sea. I have not. But I imagine this is being terrifying and something that you pay attention to. The waters are roaring and foaming. The mountains are quaking with the surging. This is a reality in the world. And so those people who are saying, wait a second, things are not okay. Things are not okay. The psalm is saying things are not okay right now. And it is only because God is enacting desolation upon the earth, shattering spears, working mightily against these inimical forces. That is why we can be still. So I think if we don't, if we don't pay attention to that link, we can fall prey to one of those, one of those two extremes, which can't exist on their own. Well, that's absolutely perfect. I mean, I mean, it's time to take a quick break and explore some sermon stars. But let me just say right now, I mean, that basic idea is enough to work with. So we may explore that or we may go in some other directions for some additional ideas. But I'm mean, just to capture that love of justice on the one hand and then that awareness and stillness and knowledge of God and what he's up to. And the way that those two come together, that's just really, really great. And the way they're just linked with this stark verb out of nowhere, stop. 
Whereas one of my Old Testament profs, he would translate it, shut up and know that I am God, you know, <laughs> as he's kind of silencing the nations, you know, um, the clamor of the nations. Well, let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Aubrey Buster, and we are looking at Psalm 46. Uh, so let's explore some sermon starters. How can we pray, sing, experience, preach, practice this psalm? Right before the break, we already had a very central idea about thinking through these different impulses in the Christian community and how they come together in this psalm. I think that that alone is a great idea to run with, and maybe we'll come back to that. But there was something that Aubrey mentioned to me on a break that she was just thinking about different songs that there's a lot of songs that have built off this psalm. So Aubrey, if you'd be willing to share a little bit of what you noticed there. Yeah. So in order to get my mind on, on Psalm 46, I decided to, to listen to several musical settings of this psalm. As many of you probably know, as we've already mentioned, this psalm is the inspiration text for Martin Luther's famous A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a beautiful uh, rendition of this particular psalm. It takes it in a very interesting direction, actually, in, in terms of spiritualizing the foes, which is uh, is is very interesting. And then, of course, Bach set that uh, Ein feste Burg ist unser Gott, I apologize for my German pronunciation, into a, a beautiful cantata. But then there are also several more contemporary settings of this psalm. So I was listening to Poor Bishop Hooper's, which I found really interesting in part and, and kind of stimulated the, the reading of the psalm that, that we did today. Whereas Martin Luther's is a very triumphal setting of the psalm, which I think is absolutely correct. There is a triumphalism in this psalm, a sense of God's already present victory over our foes. And that's that's made apparent by the musical set setting with Martin Luther. Poor Bishop Hooper's setting is much more haunting. And it was within that psalm, it's really striking when they begin to sing that phrase, come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. And it was really the first time that I noticed the violent kind of martial mechanism by which God is described as being our, our strength and fortress. Uh, so in listening to those several different settings, different pieces of the psalm came to my attention. Yeah, boy. And the initial imagery is God as defense against these waves coming at us. And then the nations roaring then in six... Of course, it keeps the imagery. It's like the nations are now functioning like waves. And to have the Lord of Armies then show up, you know, maybe that's one of the benefits of the delay of not introducing this refrain a little sooner, is now the Lord of Armies shows up and he's also then goes on offense, right? And it's a counterattack in the second half. So it's like you're getting both defense and offense, as it were. Maybe that's not helpful, but it's it's just it is strange how much the psalm is inviting us to pay attention to the desolations God is bringing and that many of the things in this earth that the same things that stir us up, you know, we think, I think of being still and it's like, oh yeah, I'm all stirred up by all the stuff going on in the world. Okay. Yeah. A lot of that, maybe most of that is just the injustice of the evil in human nature and human society. But some of what's stirring me up is God doing stuff in response to that and to contain that and to push that back. And because that also stirs me up, you know? And so again, again, why the 
the being still can't stand alone outside the the go behold. That's another kind of sermon I'm playing with. There's verse eight. You know, if, if you have verse eight alone, all you think is you need to be paying attention, you know, reading the newspaper every day, figuring out what's going on in the world. Where's God working? And the be still directs our attention onto God and God's sovereignty over all of these things. So there's both go and behold and stop and know. So you're looking out at the Lord's work in the world and at God's looming over his authority over all of this. I don't know. And that may loosely correspond to the fortress and the, the advance, the, the armies, right? You know, you want to, I think, and you're right. Christians do. We tend, some of us are like, we really want to go be in the fortress with God <laughs> where it's safe and still. And some of us are maybe a little too excited to be out on the front lines, <laughs> slaughtering his enemies. Right. So to get a sense of that rhythm between the two is one of the perhaps lessons we can learn from it. And to link this back to a conversation we were having earlier about the way in which communal memory, communal knowledge about God is formed by these repeated refrains, I think one one thing to say is that in verse 8 in, in the English, come and see what the Lord has done. In the Hebrew, it, it's a, more woodenly, it says, come and see the wondrous things of the Lord. That is, it's unclear if it's describing, hey, if you look out your window, God is doing something really obvious to the nations of the earth, which I actually think is a really hard interpretation to defend. Uh, we don't have anymore an, an inspired interpreter of exactly what God is doing at this point in time in the moment. What we do have is an authoritative revelation of, of what God has done with God's people in the past in our word. And so to say, come and see what the Lord has done as a pastor, you might point the people to those fundamental foundations of the Christian faith. The psalm itself refers back to the crossing of the Red Sea. That is that great moment where God defeated the foe, uh, the oppressor of God's people, and then used the sea, that force of chaos, to fully flatten his army. You might point, like Luther does in the hymn of Mighty Fortresses Our God, to the decisive work of Christ in defeating our foes. Um, but this is a way to use this psalm to kind of confirm that communal memory. We do all know, as the body of Christ, what God has done. And it is because our knowledge of those activities that we then trust God to work in the present and the future. And the other thing I'll say about memory is that you might think creatively about using a song to do this. There are different settings of this psalm. They emphasize different things. And you might think for your congregation at this point in time, what refrain do they need? What refrain do they need to sing before or after I preach this psalm in order to bring to attention some common aspect of the psalm that, that we can meditate upon? Oh, that's a beautiful thought. I mean, just in general about preaching on the psalms that you wouldn't always have to kind of have a singular focus and theme that would be supported by music, but that you could literally play a couple different songs. Hey, here's a couple different takes on this psalm, each of which have validity and each of which might be relevant for you and recognize that you might need one of these others some other day, even if you don't today. So it's good, you know, they're there uh, to reach for. Boy, so yeah, so if you have this direct quote from Exodus in, in five, you have the imagery of the, you know, this, I don't know if there's, if it's implied that this is Zion and where the temple is in the present, you have these later developments in the work of Christ. But in, in all these cases, from whether it's the parting of the Red Sea or the, the worship at the temple or 
the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, all of these events are their desolations before their consolations, right? I mean, it's pretty terrifying to have God blow a sea up into the air and walk through it. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's terrifying. It doesn't feel like salvation till you're on the other end and it closes in and the and Pharaoh's dead, right? It's like you need the whole and the same goes for the slaughter that takes place in the temple and Christ's own passion and death. It's like these are the way that God writes straight through crooked lines. He's our fortress and he is with us, but this is not your normal kind of fortress. He moves in mysterious ways. I love how you paired consolation and desolation there because that's a really nice way of summarizing the movement of this psalm. Because the end of the day, the goal of the psalm is that you won't be afraid because God is with you. (laughs) That is the central consolation, the central truth. And all of the other descriptions are designed to fulfill that goal. So if you think of the journey that you would want to take your congregation on, that is its ending point. That is its ending point that they will not fear, not because they're naive, not because the mountains aren't falling into the heart of the sea. They are, they are, but that they might not be afraid because of the work of God. And to have that as your kind of final message of consolation, that'd be a beautiful goal to keep in mind. Right. Because the one thing that unites consolation is desolation is that the Lord is with us. Lord is with us, right? So that's maybe kind of nice. I mean, I mean, leave it to me to make a churchy or twist. But I mean, here it is. It's the last psalm of the last Sunday in ordinary time. You know, next week will be the transition of Christ the King Sunday, and then Advent after that. So the season of you know Emmanuel is right upon us. So that that is the and in a way Emmanuel kind of sums up the. The message of the Psalter as a whole. Yeah. You could have an excuse to play some Christmas music, right? You ah. could go from Lord of Hosts is with us, because it is, right? The Lord of Hosts is with us. Too soon, too <laughs> soon, Aubrey. <laughs> it's, not too soon. it's not too soon if the psalm invites it. It's not yeah. too soon if the psalm invites it. You in your Little basement snow, with your guitars, you sing Christmas songs anytime you want. <laughs> we have rules. I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, if the psalm breaks the rules so then <laughs> so be it <laughs> i love it i love it i don't care about those rules at all i'm just joking oh well thank you so much avery this was a blast i had a great time talking with you today uh we appreciate your your contribution today and and the number of episodes you were on this year you really have helped the psalms come alive for us so thank you so much and uh, thanks to todd and eric for your production work can't imagine doing the show without you thanks to tom adamson for donating the theme music Thanks to all the listeners of the show, but especially our supporters. Uh, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text. Find ways you can support the show there. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, hope you have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>